Hey, good morning, church family. It's good to be with you all. Hope you're doing well. Um, so last week, Travis began talking a little bit about how we can sometimes wallow in the guilt of our sin. I think we can all resonate with that at times. And that word wallow kind of stood out to me. He used it again this morning. Stood out to me because I'm from Iowa, okay? And, of course, the term comes from pigs, right? This is probably better than an ice bath, I, I would guess. I read an article last week, and it said that pigs in Iowa outnumber people eight to one. It's a lot of pigs. The article was about how Americans aren't eating enough bacon anymore. So... I'm doing my part. Now, you guys, you need to support us Iowans. I'm from Iowa. Support your local Iowan. All Iowans know that pigs like to wallow in mud. They love it. And in Galatians, you kind of get this sense that the Galatians actually enjoyed kind of wallowing in the law. The law. We've been talking a lot about it. Galatians 4.21, which we'll probably talk about in the coming weeks, it says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And I have to ask myself, why would anyone in their right mind desire to be on this endless, miserable treadmill of having to work and strive and toil and struggle to earn a right standing with God. Why would they do that? I think it's because there's a little bit of Pharisee in each and every one of us. In Galatians, they're called Judaizers. They're, they're, uh, the Pharisees, you know, were in Jesus' day, and they, they just had this meticulous rule-following mentality. What drove that? It was pride, basically. Anything that feeds our pride in any one of a thousand different ways is like crack cocaine to the remnant of our sinful nature. God has to literally tackle us off of our treadmills, you know, of merit-based righteousness. And we see the importance of this even clear back in the Ten Commandments. Last week, Travis shared the verses on how all those who are striving to be justified by their own works and obedience to the law are under a curse, right? This curse is it's not just bad karma. It's not just, you know, missing out on some of the favor of God. It was a curse of death. In one of my quiet times this week, I read about the Old Testament command to keep the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 says, Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. And to all of us practical, busy, industrious, 21st century American Christians, that sounds crazy. It sounds harsh beyond all reasonableness. 
Why would God exact such a severe penalty, you know, for mowing your lawn on a Saturday afternoon? Death? But you see, it was a foreshadow of the seriousness of trying to earn our own salvation. When a person believes and rests in the gospel, they cease from their work. They completely and forever cease from trying to earn their own salvation. They enter into God's Sabbath rest by trusting in the finished work of Christ on their behalf. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't have a sense that that we here in this congregation struggle with this perhaps as much as the Galatians did. You know, I, I think we're pretty intellectually just well grounded in the gospel. We talk about it a lot. But are we wallowing in the gospel to where it affects our outlook on life, our self-image, our, our, our marriages, our parenting, our evangelism, our service, our view of other people? Now, please, this morning and every morning, please, please don't let the familiarity of the gospel on these Sunday mornings cause you to just mentally check out, okay? Because you feel like you've heard it all before. I've heard it all before too. This scene from the book Pilgrim's Progress, it's a reminder to me of my life, B.C., before Christ. And this particular picture reminds me of when I, there was a time we, we built a, a a garage, and, and I, I had to go up ladders with 80-pound bundles of shingles on my back. And this is how, when I was 19, God led me to Calvary, where I saw my need for a Savior, and who voluntarily took my sin upon himself and died the death that I deserved. And then it reminds me of how suddenly my heavy, crippling burden of sin was gone gone and I could, I could walk up right again <laughs> with hope and joy and a lightness and a, a spring in my step. Never lose the wonder of that day when your nasty, gnarly, crushing weight of sins miraculously just rolled off your back, never to return. And you cried out, hallelujah. And then remember that multitudes of people, billions, still live in ignorance and darkness. So let's pray before we dive into Galatians 3. This is kind of a technical chapter, but Paul gets kind of nitpicky here. And so I think we're going to have to, you know, dial in a little bit to, to grasp these, these somewhat complex arguments that he's making, okay? Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, I'm, I'm reminded this morning of Psalm 40 that David wrote. Uh, it says, he cried out to you and you inclined to him and you heard his cry. And you brought him up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, out from wallowing in the filthy mud. And you set his feet upon a rock, making his footsteps firm. You put a new song in his mouth, a song of praise to God. And Lord, 
You've done all this for us. But Lord, each of us, we still have pride in our lives. And so we ask that as we look deeply into your gospel, that that pride would be abased. Pray, Lord, that we would cry afresh, hallelujah, to the one who took our curse of death, our cup of wrath, and drank it down to its very dregs so that we could be free. Open our eyes afresh to what you've done and thrill our hearts once more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you recall, some of the Christians in Galatians were trying to be justified or made righteous by a mixture of their faith in Jesus plus adhering to some of the Mosaic law. And it all stemmed from their misunderstanding, really, of the purpose of the law. So here in Galatians 3, Paul is going to continue to just boldly correct them by building a case that takes them all the way back to the very roots of their religion and God's promise to the father of their faith, Abraham. At the end of last week's passage, we saw how Paul drew their attention to God's promise to Abraham and how he blessed Abraham, and that blessing would eventually come to all the nations. But the Galatians, they really weren't ready to admit that Abraham was justified merely by faith in God's promise. And even if he was, they thought that the giving of the law 430 years later overruled that justification by faith alone. So Paul's going to just dismantle that argument, okay, by taking them back to Genesis and what exactly it was that God promised Abraham. So let's begin by reading Galatians 3, 15 to 18 together. It's on page 973, but I'm also going to just have it up on the screen for you. Paul writes, to give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So Paul's use of the word covenant here can mean an agreement, but it can also mean a will, as in, you know, someone's last will and testament that identifies the recipients of your inheritance when you die. And the point he's making is that the wishes and the promises contained in a will are unalterable. You don't just decide to annul a will, nor do you have the freedom to add conditions to it. Some of the Jewish Christians were angry because they thought that the Gentile Christians were trying to make the law of Moses null and void. That's what it seemed like. And many Christians today, in fact, view the law of Moses that way, as obsolete and irrelevant. Many of them don't even read the Old Testament because they don't see it as applicable. On the other extreme, I've met Christians that think that we are somewhat obligated to keep all the Jewish feasts, the Sabbaths, even some of the dietary laws. 
They try to somehow cover all their bases, you know, by mixing together as much as they can from both Judaism and Christianity in the hopes of, you know, being extra righteous somehow. But you see, both of them are wrong. The proper use of the Old Testament law is neither to divorce it from our Christianity nor to incorporate it into our Christianity. So what is its proper use, you may ask? Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. But Paul continues to build his case like a good lawyer, and he makes a very subtle observation regarding the wording of God's original promise to Abraham. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So God inspired Moses to use the singular word offspring here and why? I mean, what's the, what's the big deal? Well, we need to go back and look at the context that Paul is referring to. Last week, we read about two encounters that Abraham had with God. First was when God called him, you know, from his homeland in Canaan or, uh, to, you know, to, uh, to travel to the land of Canaan. And then second was when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And God made this unilateral covenant with Abraham. You recall we talked about last week when Abraham goes to sleep and God in the form of the blazing oven and the fiery torch passes between the, the split animal carcasses. That was the second time. The third time was after Abraham proved his willingness to sacrifice his own son Isaac. And God provided the ram for Abraham to sacrifice instead. So let's read Genesis twenty-two fifteen to 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So three times here, God uses the singular word offspring instead of offsprings. And other translations use the words descendant or seed for offspring. But Paul is basing his entire argument here on the singular versus plural form of this word. But it's confusing. Because the Hebrew word for seed, it's zera, it's a collective singular noun. Sounds like an oxymoron, right? Collective singular, come on. But in other words, even though it's singular, it's referring to the entirety of Abraham's offspring. Different Bible scholars have tried to make sense of this, and here's what I've learned. Here in Genesis, the seed in Genesis is referring to Abraham's son Isaac and not all of his multiple offspring. But this passage also hints of a future fulfillment as well. Isaac was Abraham's miracle child through whom the future Messiah would be descended. So Isaac is what we would call a biblical type. Biblical type. He foreshadowed another miraculously born son who would be sacrificed, Jesus. 
So the Apostle Paul is correct in his interpretation that the offspring, singular, is Christ. But there's a collective implication as well. Jesus has many adopted children, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And this collective element is made up of believers throughout all time. Christ has one singular body, right? But it's made up of multiple members who enter into this promise given to Abraham by believing in Christ. The Jews had always believed that the Messiah, uh, the predicted Messiah, and all the blessings would come through a single individual. Its fulfillment was awaiting Abraham's one single future descendant, the Messiah, through whom all the nations would be blessed. So this is Paul's explanation for the singular form offspring, and it's his evidence that the law did not invalidate God's previous covenantal promise to Abraham. Also, importantly, it's proof that this promise was not intended for all of Abraham's physical descendants. Rather, it is pointing to all his future spiritual descendants. Here's a timeline so we can see how all these events fit together. First, on the left, God hearkened back to the the promise to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when he made this covenant with Abraham, passing between those divided animals. And Abraham was later declared righteous by faith in this gospel promise. Then, 430 years later, 430 years pass, and the old covenant law is then given to ethnic Israel at Mount Sinai in order to serve as a guardian until this promised seed, the Messiah, would come. This, this Mount Sinai was an, a momentous event. But even then, the purpose for which God gave the law, it was not rightly understood by those who received it. They forgot that, that Abraham's obedience was prompted by faith. And so also their obedience needed to be prompted by faith. They mistakenly interpreted this new law of Moses as a means by which they could get right with God and stay right with God. Israel was under this guardianship of the law for 1,500 years until Christ was crucified inaugurating the new covenant with spiritual Israel, that is, all true believers in Jesus. And so, if a right standing with God is not the purpose of the law, what is its purpose? Let's continue reading Galatians three nineteen to 26. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So the law was intended to be this this guardian in anticipation of when faith would come. Some Bible translations use the term tutor or schoolmaster, but those are incorrect. The Greek word is pedagogue, which means child custodian or attendant, not a teacher. This was typically a, a family slave who had charge over a child from ages 6 to 16 to take him to school and to oversee their behavior. The point is, this guardian's responsibility ceased once the child entered into the fullness of his position as a son. And this happened by way of actually a formal right of adoption by his father. Well, likewise, we are no longer under this guardianship of the law. The moment we put our faith in Christ and we receive our adoption as sons and daughters of God the Father. So here's a question. Did the law ever, ever help the Israelites to become more holy? And the answer is no. <laughs> just, just look at their history as a nation. The law has never been an effective means of restraining sin. It has only ever been an effective means of exposing sin. It's so ironic. You know, Satan tries to get us to use the law to prove that we're righteous. But God, God gave us the law to prove that we're sinners. <laughs> Paul gives us three clues here in Galatians 3 as to the purpose, purposes of the law. One, it was added because of transgressions. Two, it imprisoned everything under sin. And three, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Now certainly, sin was still sin before it was specified by the giving of the law. But the law was like a magnifying glass. It was like a spotlight that made sin even more obvious. As John Stott writes, he says, after God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he really is underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the punishment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. He goes on, one of the greatest faults of the contemporary church is this tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear, and it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Isn't that good? The law is designed to confront us with our need for a savior. 
And so we need to rely heavily upon it anytime we have opportunity to engage in evangelism. Even Jesus used it for this. In Matthew 19, 16 to 22, I don't have a slide, I'll just read it to you. It says, Behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell your what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So this man, this man mistakenly thought that he had kept all of God's commandments. But had he really loved his neighbor as himself? No. And Jesus exposed that fact. If the man really loved his neighbor as himself, he would have been willing to go and sell all of his possessions and give them to the poor. You see, Jesus was not trying to get this man to do yet more good works in order to secure his salvation. He was just exposing his utter failure to keep the law. The law is far more searching and demanding than people think it is. Before Jesus came, many people thought that they were keeping God's law pretty well. But then Jesus expanded the law to include even our words and our thoughts as well. And so Jesus was the word made flesh, the perfect human being. And so he himself became the ultimate standard to whom all of us must compare ourselves. And by that standard, we all fall infinitely short every single day. The law is a vital, indispensable part of the gospel. Again, John Stott writes this. He says, Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. So the main point of the gospel is not or ever to raise our moral standard. That's a byproduct. God is not trying to improve your behavior. The purpose of the gospel is forgiveness and all the fruit of that. Clinging to our good works, our self-sufficiency, our morality, and so on, it's like clinging to a life preserver made of stone, right? We gotta release it and cling to God's mercy. That's what it means to be a Christian. Once we come to Christ, the law has accomplished its job and, and we no longer need it. Now it's, it's instinctive. It's written upon our hearts. It's like... The graphic in the corner there. The law is on our hearts. And our delight is to do God's will. But the best news of all is the law will never ever testify against us or judge us or condemn us 
ever again. And we might feel that way at times, but we cannot trust our feelings. This quote by Tim Keller reminds us of that. This is my favorite quotes of all time. He says, the trial is over. The verdict is in. But every time, every day you feel yourself being sucked back into the courtroom, all I can tell you is that we have to relive the gospel every time we pray. We have to relive it every time we go to church. We have to relive the gospel on the spot and ask ourselves, what are we doing in the courtroom? We should not be there. The court is adjourned. I love that. The court is adjourned. But you see, our brains are just hardwired to believe that acceptance is a function of performance. And from the very moment we are born, this world reinforces that premise at every turn. It's what the whole idea of karma is about, you know, in the Hindu religion. But it's also deeply embedded in the minds of many Christian Americans. It's the law of cause and effect. You do good, you get rewarded. You do bad, you get punished. Works all over this planet. I found this quote by Bono. He's looking kind of rough. <laughs> From the band U2, he made this observation. He says, it's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. He concludes by saying, and yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. As you sow, so will you reap stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. <laughs> we all have. I've done a lot of stupid stuff. And we can freely admit that because of grace. You know, Galatians 6 actually does say that whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And so there is truth in that. But when it comes to our adoption by God and our inheritance, we absolutely are not getting what we deserve. And we don't just have God's acceptance. You know, oh, I'll accept you. I'll tolerate you now. No. We have God's covenant love. You know, this, this is love. It's, it's not like water. It's more like blowing up the Hoover Dam, you know, and releasing a tidal wave. The cross released a tsunami of God's love upon us. Well, Paul concludes his train of thought in this chapter by sharing the outcome and the results of all this. Galatians 3 27 to 29, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one 
in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So to put on Christ is, it means to identify with Christ and by becoming like him. You know, we live in a time when everybody seems to be identifying as something, right? People identify as this and they identify as that and they mimic or they emulate whatever it is they identify as in order to belong to that certain group. We need to identify as Christ followers. And when we do, we belong to each other in such a way that all the distinctions that formerly divided us lose their significance. It's not that those distinctions of race or status or gender cease to exist. It's just that they no longer matter. No one is superior or inferior to anyone anymore. And the reason for this, Paul says, is you are all one, singular noun, in Christ Jesus. If you are baptized into Christ, then you belong to Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, collective noun. And if you are Abraham's offspring, then you are an heir of the promise to Abraham. And what did God promise Abraham? Well, this little strip of land in the Middle East, that's, that's our inheritance. Someday, this little strip of real estate is going to be yours. <laughs> no. Astonishingly, the Apostle Paul, the same author as Galatians, reinterprets this promise to Abraham. He's an apostle. He has the liberty to do this. And he expands both Abraham's inheritance and thus our inheritance to be the entire world. Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of what? Faith. Faith. Saints, our inheritance is the whole world. Not only that, our inheritance is eternal life. Our inheritance is the entire family of God, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Our inheritance is incorruptible bodies. Amen? (laughs) And the Holy Spirit who's going to indwell us forever. And our inheritance is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our great high priest and redeemer and king and bridegroom. Band, you guys can come on back up. The most important question we will ever face in this life is the question of law or promise, merit or grace, works or faith, slavery or freedom, striving or rest, pride or humility, self or Christ. They're all the same question. And every non-Christian in the world is currently answering it the same way with the first word in each pair. But like 
the Christian Galatians, we also must still choose each and every day how we are going to answer that question because sometimes, sometimes we're answering it wrong without even realizing it. There's such a beautiful connection between the Old and New Testament that we see in the book of Galatians. I'd like to close with just one more that gives us one more practical result of what, what we've looked at today. Exodus thirty-three, eighteen. Moses is with God and, and Moses says to him, please, show me your glory, God. Show me your glory. And, and God responds to him. God says, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And I want you to imagine a glory that is so intense, you know, that it not only fries your eyeballs like staring at a supernova, but you would literally instantly die if you saw it, if you saw God's face. You know what? God still answered this request to see his face, Moses' request, and not only for him, but for us as well. 2 Corinthians, New Testament, 4, 6. says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of what? The glory of God. That's what Moses prayed to see. We have it now, the glory of God. And where do we see this intense, blinding, blazing glory of God's face without dying? in the face of Jesus Christ. That gives me shivers. Old Testament, New Testament. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that today we can see your face through eyes of faith and through your word. And that the day is coming when we will see you with our physical eyes. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks for tackling us off of our treadmills and for making us heirs of Abraham through the same faith that he had. And thank you for the incredible precision of your word that gives us such confidence that we can stake our very lives on it. God, we bless you. Bless you for your tsunami of covenantal love that you have lavished on us. And we love you, Lord. We love you. Amen.